Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And frankly, our breaking news this hour is awful. We're still trying to find answers to what happened in Buffalo and get answers to questions in Uvalde. And now we've got another mass shooting in America tonight, this time in a medical building on the campus of the St. Francis Hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We learned that at least four victims are dead. The shooter is also dead. Here is video from the early moments of the police response, officers pulling out their long guns, And a woman watching the chaos said that when she saw emergency vehicles racing to the scene and the rifles being pulled out, she couldn't help but get emotional. Frankly, it's hard not to imagine or hard to even not be emotional from yet another mass shooting in this country. I'm going to talk to a city council member who says the shooter may have been looking for a specific doctor at that campus. And as we get you up to date on what happened in Tulsa this evening... We're not going to forget for one moment what's going on in Uvalde, Texas. How can we? And we're going to look at all the important questions that we're asking there tonight, later in this hour. But we cannot turn away from the reality that this is happening all across this country. Gun violence as an epidemic only seems to be growing. And tonight, it is throwing yet another American city into mourning. And right now, I want to bring in Captain Richard Mielenberg of the Tulsa Police Department. Captain, thank you for joining me this evening. I have to tell you, it's, it's really stunning that here we are again, and perhaps for many people, not stunning, of the state of affairs we live in today, because no one believes it will happen in their town. And here it is in Tulsa. What is the latest? What do you know about what's happened here tonight? So I appreciate the time you're taking with me tonight. I can tell you... Things are slowing down here for us now. It's been just controlled chaos for a few hours for us. Uh, I can tell you we have five deceased. One of those deceased is going to be our shooter. Uh, We're still unpacking a lot of this information. It's absolutely tragic. But we responded to the scene, and we found the shooter relatively quickly. I don't have a good count on the wounded right now, but we don't have anybody else that has a life-threatening injury. I can tell you this was an incredibly complex scene as it took place in a medical facility, basically a a clinic, if you will, that's five stories, multiple floors. It's the kind of place you would go, you know, to just visit with your doctor for a follow-up appointment. So uh, it was just just madness inside with hundreds of rooms and hundreds of people trying to get out of the building. Captain, are you saying that there may have been other people aside from the ones we know who have died that have been shot this evening? Are there other wounded from this gunman? So we have some other wounded, less than 10. We're just trying to figure. So right now, no one else uh, has any life-threatening injuries. Some were wounded in just the chaos of trying to escape. And we are looking at some who are wounded by potential gunfire. But we're still figuring it out as people scattered and were carted off very quickly to 
this hospital and other hospitals with injuries. So we're digging into that and we're going to have a more definitive number here later this evening. In terms of where this took place within this campus, do we know anything about the floor this happened on? Was it on multiple floors? Was this shooter going from room to room? Do you know anything about the the path that this person took? So it was all contained to the second floor of this medical facility that has five floors. What's on that second floor? What's on that floor, Captain? Is there a certain type of medical treatment? I don't know precisely what they're on there. There were medical staff there. Uh, I don't know what their specialty was, but it was, you know, an outpatient style facility for medical care. And in terms of what we know, or do we know anything about the shooter? You say that the shooter um, may have died from a self-inflicted wound. Do you know anything about the shooter, the relative age of the person, anything about the motivation? Is this person known to authorities? So I, we do have some preliminary information, which are not ready to release at this time, because there are other circumstances involved with this that are outside the hospital that we can't talk about right now. So we're still working with other agencies and other jurisdictions as this is related to a much bigger issue with this shooter. I, I know I, mean, I, I know it sounds kind of, I can't really get into it too much. Uh, we don't believe that anybody else is in grave danger at this point, but this is more than isolated to this one facility. So, of course, my ears are perking up at the notion of jurisdictions and a coordinated effort to try to understand what I I certainly appreciate and don't want to compromise the investigation or the safety of people who are in the area. Um, But suffice to say, you've got multiple people who are wounded, either in the chaos of leaving. This person, there's part of a larger orchestrated event to understand the investigation. In terms of what we know about um, the the motive or the person, was there one person targeted or was this at this point in time, as far as you know, something that was that was unintended and just intended to cause um, mass casualties, but yet there was not one particular target? So we've got some preliminary information at this time, but not enough to where we're comfortable releasing it. Uh, you know, we don't believe at this time that he was just targeting, you know, the entire hospital per se, but it's entirely possible that he was targeting at least this floor. He went to this floor with purpose. And who responded? I mean, how did you know that there was an active shooter on the premises? Was it a 911 call? Was it somebody from a um, within inside the building who was security for the hospital or the campus? How were you first alerted? I understand the entire thing took about four to five minutes. To walk me through how you were alerted to this happening. It's very short. We received a phone call that there was a gentleman on campus with a rifle. Officers showed up. The call came in for us at 4.52 this afternoon. They call us dispatch to officers at 4.53, and our first officer arrived on scene at 4.56. So within three minutes, we arrived on scene. You know, looking for the suspect, we uh, had heard shots being fired on the second floor. Officers, you know, ran up to the second floor, and as they were breaching the door in the stairway, which was at 5.01, so about five minutes into the situation they were breaching that doorway and they heard the shooting stop so in that type of situation is no longer what's considered an active shooter where someone is you know actively just continuing to fire rounds as it stops so in an active shooter situation for us we will continue to run and aggress where those shots are coming from so it stopped 
And as soon as it stopped, we got through that door and we found our first victim. So as we continued on, we found another victim and the suspect who had apparently shot himself. Have the victims yet been identified? We know who they are, but we're still making notifications to the family at this time. Do you know what the weapon that was used was? He had a long gun, or a rifle, and a pistol. And by the time you arrived, how were you aware that this was the shooter that was um, that has been deceased? Was there some indication when about we, his person? When we found the shooter, he still had the rifle and the pistol on his person. He was then dead, though, at that point in time. Correct. Correct. We're hearing no- news and, and some reports about a potential incident happening in Muskegee, Muskogee. What, do you, what can you tell us about that? An area not too far from Tulsa. I can't confirm that right now. Uh, we are looking into that. That may be part of this investigation, but it's too, uh, there's too much going on with that to, to give you a comprehensive idea of how it's related. We do have investigators heading that direction right now to make contact with that department and with some individuals that are involved in this situation. Captain, thank you so much for your time. Were any officers wounded in this? We had no officers wounded in this. Uh, we have lots of officers on scene, and uh, it's a horribly tragic event. Any life lost is horribly tragic. Uh, I'm very, very proud of the officers for getting there as quickly as they did, you know, very well potentially stopping more people from losing their life today. Captain Richard Mullenberg, thank you for your time and, and keeping us posted. I know there's a lot more to talk about, and thank you for giving us the transparency you have today. Right now, I want to bring in Jamie Fowler from the Tulsa City Council. Councilor, thank you for joining me tonight. You've just heard from the captain. Um, What more can you tell us about what you might know about what happened on the scene? Do you have any idea as to who this shooter was or what caused this tragedy? You know what, uh, you know, from the accounts that I've been given, it's, uh, you know, I can kind of reconcile from uh, uh, Captain Mullenberg is that, uh, uh, I was with an off-duty sergeant uh, there in the division that uh, that responded to this, and uh, we were getting uh, the sergeant was getting real live phone calls and texts from uh, from officers on the way to the uh, to the scene. And uh, what did you the hear? First one, the first, yeah, the first call we got was that you know there was an active shooter. They're there. They're at the Nat- Natalie Warren building there at, uh, adjacent to the uh, St. Francis Hospital. And then, you know, as we were sitting there, you know, the uh, events unfolded. And uh, I think our first confirmation is that we we heard that there were uh, three victims and the shooter uh, also took his own personal life. One person critically wounded. And and from you know what we're finding out here that 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 particular person that was critically wounded uh, has has also passed away for a total of, of five people. There's an additional casualty now. So it's now, um, you believe it might be six people, including now no, the shooter? Uh, Is that uh, you're saying? Yeah, a, to- a total of five. That's, that, okay. that's, that's what I'm... A total of five. You know, that's what I'm mean, 
any any life lost, obviously, I, is 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 one too many. You know, Councilman, when you think about this, I mean, we it's hard to look at this and view it in a vacuum. I mean, the nation has been talking about active shooters in the successive mass shootings we've seen just in recent weeks in this country. You never think it's going to happen in your community. What went through your mind as you're sitting in that car with that sergeant in real time? Are you thinking about what was going on in other places and thinking, mm-hmm. how can this be happening here? You, we we literally, uh, you know, we, you know, our our nation saw what happened in uh, Buffalo and then and, and then also in Uvalde. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you're just here in the community, you would never think something like this would happen. And, uh, you know, our hearts and prayers go out to the victims and the families. And Tulsa is just one of the most normal, nicest cities in America. And you would never really think that something like this would happen. With that said, is that the sergeant I was with, uh, the police department just yesterday practiced uh, a hostage situation uh, that uh, now today just actually transpired. And I would imagine that uh, police departments across the country uh, are doing the same thing that, you know, they are having dialogues and discussions and uh, practice situations for, for just this, this incident. And uh, it's just tragic. And, uh, uh, the words just can't begin to describe the, you know, the disappointment and yeah. the hurt. The disappointment and the hurt, I think, is so well put. And, you know, as you articulated it, the real sad reality here is that every city, every town impacted is nice and no one believes it will happen here. And that's part of the scariest part for every person living across this country, that it could, this tragedy could knock on all of our doors. And the idea that there was this training yesterday, I mean, you know, I've got kids who have active shooter training in their elementary school. Do you know if this training that took place yesterday was in reaction to the fact that there have been so many questions about what officers have done or failed to do in places like Uvalde. Was that in reaction or was it a pre-schedule? Do you know? You know, you, 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 you would hate to ever second guess what happened in Uvalde, but um, I would think that every police department of any size or scale uh, has, has dialogues and discussions uh, with, with everyone uh, in, their, in their departments and that police departments across the country, uh, you know, uh, have a dialogue and dis- discussion and get prepared for just this situation. I think, uh, you know, from what I'm hearing from uh, from reports coming in, is that uh, our police department handled this situation really, really well. Thank you, Tulsa City Councilor Jamie Fowler, and it's something that's just. It's stomach turning, frankly, to think about the idea of having to be continuously, perpetually prepared for a tragedy such as this. There's something to say about the state of our country. We're going to keep an eye on any developments from Tulsa. Rest assured, another night, another mass shooting in America. Even as so many questions remain unanswered about last week's massacre. Coming up, we'll bring you CNN's exclusive interview with the embattled police chief who led the Uvalde shooting response. He's talking to our own Shimon Procupes. Procupes, that's next.
As we keep a close eye on the new developments coming out of Tulsa, we cannot forget the pain that's happening in Uvalde, frankly, across this country. Today, a 10-year-old child, Jose Manuel Flores Jr., had to be buried in a closed casket today. This just after eight days after families had to provide DNA to even identify some of their loved ones. A loving couple was buried today as their four children are left with unanswered questions. And you know, the man that might be able to answer those questions, Chief Pete Arredondo, either he can't answer the questions or he won't. In fact, when CNN tracked down the school police chief after a week of silence on his part, one of the few answers that we got was, at best, we'll call it inconsistent. Now, remember that Chief Arredondo was the incident commander who kept officers out in the hallway. This says a young girl called 911 repeatedly from the classroom, pleading for help. There's been no word from him since the day of, sh- of the shooting, not for lack of effort on our part. This was all he had to say today after eight days of changing stories and nationwide outrage. I just want your reaction we're gonna, we're gonna, to we're gonna be, the director, McGraw, saying that you were responsible for the decision right, we're to go be, into that room. How do you explain yourself be, to the parents? We're going to be respectful to the family. I understand and, that, but and, you have and an opportunity going, oh, and sure, and we're, to explain and we're gonna, yourself to the parents. And just so you know, we're going we're gonna to do that eventually, obviously. When? And whenever this is done, and let the families quit grieving, then we'll do that, obviously. I'm sorry, did he just say that he'll give answers when the families quit grieving? Can you play that back? I want to hear that again. Whenever this is done, let the families quit grieving, then we'll do that, obviously. So, just out of curiosity, or to use his phrase, just so you know, when exactly does he think they'll be done grieving? And why, if respect for the families is the goal, why not have the respect to give them the answers right now? Some answers. I mean, both the district and the chief, they have a lot to account for. But don't let the chief say that he wasn't prepared for what may have happened last week, at least in training. I mean, we know that Arredondo took active shooter training not once, not twice, but three times, most recently in December of 2021. That's 32 hours of courses. And they didn't go in for over an hour? Now, look, we are right to question what went wrong in Uvalde. But it's not the only focus. I want to be clear that evaluating the police response does not mean that we shouldn't question our officials, our elected officials, on what else needs to be done. I mean, after all, while we've been questioning, there was another mass shooting today. And after all, it was an 18-year-old who went in with an AR-15 that he bought legally and used that weapon to murder human beings. Now, on Capitol Hill, bipartisan gun talks are in the early phases, we're being told. In fact, here's President Biden on the process. Are you confident Congress will take action on gun legislation, sir? I served in Congress for, Congress for 36 years. I'm never confident. Totally. <laughs> it depends. And I don't know. I've not been on the negotiations as are going on right now. Well, that doesn't make me feel very confident at all. But what I am confident about is this. Lives are at risk. Right now, these lives have been lost. And the unpredictability of the date of these tragic events, when the next one may occur, it means that time is of the essence. And the collateral damage is immeasurable. 
And here to explore that collateral impact tonight is Chief Chris Van Gelly, one of the first officers on the scene of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in Connecticut. Also with this is Samantha Haviland, a survivor of the Columbine High School shooting with nearly a decade of experience as a school counselor. I'm so glad that you're both here with us today because I really want to focus and hone in on what people may not be thinking about. The idea of we know about the impact of on what has happened to the families we, we think we know, we'll never be able to truly understand. But Chief, when you think about this, I mean, walk me through a little bit about what your reaction has been now. When you're thinking about the reaction by the officers, the statement that was made by that police chief to say, let's just wait to give information until the families quit grieving. I mean, what's going on in the meantime, from your experience, while families are waiting for answers? Right. Once again, uh, good evening, and thank you for having me on again. Um, before anything, I just want to say heartfelt uh, prayers and thoughts go to the families, victims, teachers, and the whole community at Ovalde, and now, of course, in Tulsa, as we see another one right on the heels of, of the shooting down in Ovalde. Um, you know, the parents go through a, a lot. You know, they want answers right away, and sometimes it's very difficult to get those answers uh, because investigations can take a long time. The Sandy Hook report, the, the investigation took over a year to get done with. However, one of the great successes of Sandy Hook is that each family was offered and given a police officer as a liaison. It was their own personal police officer. That officer's job alone, day in and day out from the start until everything wrapped up, was to be with that family to make sure that if any information came across, the families had it first, to assist the families in navigating uh, the investigation and the media, even to go get milk if the family needed somebody to go out shopping. So there are ways to, to really mitigate uh, the families and what they're going through. And I don't want to discount the experience of police officers who are responding to these scenes. I mean, the the horror of what is being seen, the emotional reaction, it is haunting for really the rest of people's lives and thinking about what they've come across and trying to grapple with it. And Samantha, I want to turn to you because you were a student at Columbine High School when the mass shooting occurred. And I understand that for years, you didn't even seek out therapy or counseling because you thought, hey, because I wasn't somebody who was actually injured, I had no right to do it. But you, the truth is, as you well know, that the collateral damage of the impact of these shootings is very wide-reaching. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I ignored my PTSD symptoms for more than a decade, um, knowing that other people had had it worse than um, I did, and I downplayed it. And I was a counselor uh, when I finally sought um, help for my PTSD. So uh, denying the symptoms and thinking other people had it worse is very common for uh, survivors. But I also I want to call out, like, this stuff is hard for those present, those not present, for teachers everywhere, for parents everywhere, and it's in every community. Um, and the more that we watch it, the more we see it, the worse it's going to get. It's terrifying for so many. I mean, it's terrifying for everyone, myself included, to think about the feeling of helplessness and not knowing the predictability, although there is something 
eerily inevitable. And it's it's just something that's haunting. But I wonder, what do you make and what is the advice or the counsel that you believe is necessary? I mean, both of you, with the experiences you have, you've been on the ground, you've seen what happens, you understand the complexity and really the simplicity of the responses, what they should be. But walk me through a little bit, Samantha, in terms of what you see as missing in this conversation. What do you think people ought to be considering when they're thinking about a reaction to these mass shootings? If I'm totally honest, um, I'm frustrated that we're always talking about the reaction and not the prevention. Um, We react to these things. And I think a lot of schools and districts have a lot of practice and we can lean heavily on each other on how to recover from these things. But why as a society are we waiting for it to happen in every single community before we decide to make some sort of response to prevent it? I mean, the idea of this being something that we react to as opposed to being proactive. Chief, I want to end with you because, you know, you and I were speaking about this you know, offline and thinking about the notion of, and I asked you a question, I, I would love to hear your response. And that is, you know, we've, we've been talking a lot about the police reaction um, of what happened in Uvalde or didn't happen in Uvalde. You were one of the first sh- people to respond on the scene at Sandy Hook Elementary School. And even having gone in, you grappled with and other officers about not even going in soon enough. Tell me about this idea of what happens and what's going through these officers' mind as they are under this magnifying glass. Is this something that is going to have an impact on not only morale, but the idea of how they are processing even their own roles? Yeah, so at the same time that you're dealing with having witnessed um, you know, uh, the deaths of, of multiple people, in a horrific event that you know most of us will never see in our career, and then dealing with the you know acute stress disorder, which can turn into PTSD. On top of that, you have depression and you have guilt, and there's survivor's guilt. There's guilt for the people that were in the school that day and survived. There's guilt from the officers that were working that day that wanted to be there with their fellow officers, and there's guilt from all the officers I think that responded you're always going to sit there and want to question and say, maybe there's something I could have done differently. Uh, Maybe if I got here sooner, maybe if uh, I went down this hallway versus that hallway, Uh, maybe if I got to the ambulance quicker or the ambulance came up to meet us quicker. Uh, In the end, you know, in our particular case, you know, we realized that there was really nothing that we could do. We got there fast enough. We did our jobs. We got people that we thought we could save out of the building. Um, But you still, you still live with that. Um, and you really have to get counseling. You know, I did several years of counseling. I still go back every now and again, and it's important for each department to have a very, very good uh, employee assistance program, an EAP. So when these events happen, you know, trained professionals can come out to the police department and the other first responders and actually sit with them and deal with it right right at the beginning when it's uh, the most critical part. And Samantha, to the work that you do as well, the idea of having that available and recognizing the importance of these services, this is part of the conversation. And I'm a stone throw away from the Capitol here in Washington, D.C. I bet they may be able to be proactive, even where we cannot. Chief Ben Gelly, Samantha Havlin, thank you both so much tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Now, a significant victory for Johnny Depp. After a graphic six-week trial that captured the nation's attention, but jurors also found reason to side with his ex-wife, Amber Heard, 
We'll break down what the jury said about Depp's defamation case against Amber Heard and vice versa next. The Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation battle has finally come to an end. Today, jurors found that both stars were liable in some way for defaming the other, but they primarily sided with Johnny Depp, awarding him a total of $15 million in compensatory and punitive damages, although there might be some caps in terms of what they're actually able to extend. Now, while Heard was awarded $2 million, none of that was actually punitive. The jury sided with her on one of the three counts, finding that one of Depp's lawyers actually defamed her. The verdict caps a seven-week trial that was full of lurid details and drama that all started, of course, after Depp sued his ex-wife over a 2018 op-ed that identified her as a domestic abuse survivor. So how did jurors sort through the weeks of really dirty laundry and get to the heart of each case to reach this verdict? Joining me now is Ken Turkell, an attorney who specializes in these celebrity defamation cases. Well, Ken, here we are. We've been waiting for this moment to find out what the jury might actually find. First of all, were you surprised by the verdict in favor of Johnny Depp and also a liability in for an, a statement by the attorney of Johnny Depp for Amber Heard? I'm not sure anything could really have surprised me in this case. <laughs> it, was, it was just not conventional in so many ways. Um, was I surprised? I never read much into the social media and to the buzz around these trials because I've done them and I know it ultimately means nothing. All that means anything is what the jury thinks. What, what I guess would surprise me, these are very much zero-sum games, Laura. You don't really see compromised verdicts. You don't see a liability verdict with 50,000, 100,000. So the idea that there's an eight-figure verdict there doesn't surprise me given the way the evidence came in and what it seemed like the vibe was in the courtroom. Um, that part well, doesn't well, surprise that, Ken, me a little bit. I, yeah. I, do, I do want to walk, I want to hear your answer to that, but I also want to walk through, because you know, we got the word defamation on the screen right now. And you and I have talked about the fact that most of this trial did not follow the sort of flow chart one would go through when you're talking about a defamation trial. The idea of here are, here's what you had to prove. So I want to walk through a little bit of the elements of what you had to prove in this case, because as you heard the, jury, the jury's verdict being read, they marched through these questions and had to answer yes. And so walk me through in terms of um, what the take is, the idea of the question was, was it made or a statement, was it made or published by Heard? Um, was it about Johnny Depp? Was it false? Was there a defamatory implication about Johnny Depp? Was there a defamatory um, implication by someone who sought who was not Johnny Depp? And did they prove these things about actual malice? Walk me through in terms of how this how this was really the crux of what the jury had to look for. And so some of these elements, as we talked about in one of the, the earlier appearances I had, this sounded more like a he said, she said, almost domestic violence, you know, counter accusations. But it boils down to the statements made in this op-ed. And the statements were set forth in each part of the verdict form with the elements you just read. Now, when you look at these statements, one of the elements is, was a statement false, right? Laura's one of the things you have to prove is that it's capable of being proven false. It's a provably false statement. Now, when you look at some of these statements and things like, I incurred the wrath of a nation for standing up to a powerful man, et cetera, I am still questioning how that's provably false. Mm. And you really parse these statements out, divide them up. 
And you can literally split a sentence to figure out which part is true and provably false, et cetera. So um, as you go through these, obviously all the evidence of all the incidences that came in, the jury wasn't convinced that he ever acted with, with any sort of physical violence towards her. And therefore these statements that were implicitly directed at him were therefore false. The publishing, the writer is considered a publisher under the law, as is the the platform on which they publish. Um, and, and so the things that jump out in my mind when you talk about defamation by implication, we're not saying true, false. We're saying in the totality, they've read this and this is what it's implying. So the jury instructions that led to these are gonna be a lot more complex than these elements sound. And then you have all the First Amendment defenses. Um, but Where the does actual away, malice stand in? Him. Oh, go ahead. Excuse me. What, what's the takeaway to you? Yeah, well, takeaway. They believed him, not her. The actual malice is even at a higher standard of proof, not preponderance of the evidence, but clear and convincing evidence. That is, she did it with knowing falsity. She knew it was false or recklessly disregarded truth and falsity. Um, that could follow from this story. They very much believed him. Um, but then you have the counterclaim verdict. You're right. And on that and counterclaim, they did find that the attorney who was speaking on behalf of, John, of Johnny Depp, they found, did in fact defame Amber Heard on one of the statements that was made. And he was, she was obviously awarded some damages there. But this is a, a, it was a really complex trial in the sense that they strayed so far away from sort of the meat and potatoes of how you prove these cases of defamation. And so I'll be curious, as you are, I know, about what happens now and the impact. She certainly believes that the impact going forward will be a devastating one on women victims going forward and any victim of domestic violence. We'll talk more about the fallout and the repercussions from there. Ken Turkel, thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. We're turning back to Tulsa and tonight's breaking news, four victims dead in a mass shooting at a hospital, on a hospital campus. And by one estimate, the 20th mass shooting in America since Uvalde. Not this year, the 20th since Uvalde. That was eight days ago, America. What we know about the attack and the shooter who is now dead is next. Our breaking news this hour, at least four people dead in a mass shooting at a hospital campus in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The shooter is also dead. And police told me just moments ago that there are up to 10 people that are wounded. Joe Johns is also tracking the breaking news. Joe, what are you learning about what's going on in Tulsa? Laura, there is still a lot of mystery surrounding all of this. First of all, as to those 10 people, it's not clear at all from speaking with the authorities, as you did just a little while ago, whether those people were shot or whether they were otherwise injured as a result of the chaos in trying to get out of that five-store building when all of the shootings started this afternoon uh, heading into the evening. The shooter is dead. Four other people are also dead. The shooter apparently took his own life. He walked in with a rifle and a handgun, ended up on the second floor of that building where there's an orthopedic center, apparently shot himself as authorities were breaching their way into the room where the shooter was located. So there are some questions, of course, tonight about a corollary investigation extending to yeah. another location, but it's not clear at all what the connection is, and authorities have been very careful not to 
disclose any more than they know at this time. Back to you, Laura. So much unfolding. Thank you so much, Joe Johns. We'll keep you posted, everyone, as we get the information here in the newsroom. Everyone, not even the escape of the Star Wars movie and TV franchise can let us completely escape the worst of humanity. But there is a swell of support tonight for an actress who's being targeted by racists. Where is the hate coming from and why now? After 45 years of science fiction loved around the world, I'll tell you why next. So the force is coming together to defend one of its own. The official Star Wars page is posting messages in support of one of the actors who's been harassed by racists. Well, can we call them fans? Moses Ingram just made her debut as Reva in the Disney Plus series Obi-Wan Kenobi. But she says she's received hundreds of racist messages on social media, calling her the N-word, even threatening her life. Fans, so to speak, of the franchise are so angry that Disney had the audacity to hire a black actress for a fantasy franchise. Executive producer and star Ewan McGregor is defending his young co-star. Happening. We love Moses. And if you're sending her bullying messages, you're no Star Wars fan in my mind. I also see those of you out there who put on a cape for me. And that really does mean the world to me because, you know, there's nothing anybody can do about this. There's nothing anybody can do to stop this hate. And so I question what my purpose is and even being here in front of you saying that this is happening. Entertainment Tonight host and CNN contributor Nichelle Turner joins me now. I got to tell you, Nichelle, first of all, hearing her talk about the idea of nothing you can do about this. I mean, it's just shocking to me. You're talking about Star Wars. We can believe in R2-D2 and Obi-Wan Kenobi and a baby Yoda and all of these different characters. But a black woman in Star Wars, that's that's the part where we can't suspend disbelief. What's your reaction? Well, a, a lot of it is, I mean, you said shocking. I, I'm not sure that I'm shocked by it because it's also not the first time in this mm. franchise that we've seen its fans show the worst side of themselves. Um, but I do think it's just really sad and disheartening. And it breaks my heart to hear Moses uh, talk about the fact that she questions her purpose. Um, you know, and I, and without hearing the entire bit of that, but but because she is such a brilliant young actress and she is definitely a, a rising star in Hollywood, it really hurts me as a woman of color, too, to hear another woman saying, I question my purpose and question what I'm doing because there's nothing that we can do about this. I do agree with her on one side. I mean, it's hard to police people's prejudices, right? It's hard to um, fix what is broken in the deepest part of people and makes the ugliest part come out. Um, I do think, though, that I, I do commend you and McGregor for, for stepping up and, and speaking out. Um, I think that it is also um, on all of us to be anti-racist and to take an active part into combating this type of hate. But we've seen it before, Laura. I mean, Kelly Marie Tran also was in the Star Wars franchise. And, and when they cast her, an Asian woman, she came um, you know, up against a lot of hate herself. It drove her off social 
social media. Uh, she wrote a, an op-ed about it and she was saying, you know, it wasn't just the words of these people. It was that she started to believe them and mm. it tapped into all those things she felt about herself as a little Vietnamese girl who felt like she belonged in the margins and not in the center. And so that I think is, is the toughest part of all of this when you do hear how it really genuinely viscerally affects these, um, these actresses and actors. And John Boyega, another actor who dealt with this as well, when he was a part of the franchise. I mean, and I, I, I mean, I remember when Billy D. Williams was a part of the franchise. I mean, the, the idea that there, this is not the first time you've had a person of color in these roles. But again, it's on the backdrop, not only in a shell, of the absurdity that we're talking about Star Wars. We're talking about aliens. The idea that a human being would be controversial, right? But, you know, we're just on the heels. It's on the heels, Michelle, of escapism. I mean, people are looking to return to the movies. We were just talking yesterday about Top Gun and the box office smash. Mm -hmm. And here is an area where people can't escape the really the predicate in some ways, but the fundamental connective tissue of so much of America and race. That's what is so disheartening. Absolutely. I mean, you said it a, a few moments ago. We can believe in R2-D2 and C-3PO and Chewbacca the Wookiee and, and you know, the, the Ewoks and, the, and Yoda and, you know, baby Yoda and all of those things. We can buy into all of this. We can buy into the fact that these people have these superpowers, these super, superhuman powers, um, but we can't buy into the fact that a woman of color can also be a part of this universe or that a person of color can exist and star and thrive in this universe. That's really, really saddening to me. Now, I will say on the other side of it, Laura, we definitely have seen some of these studios say, um, you know, to their fans, listen, get on the train or you're going to get left because we're not going to kowtow to this. We are going to continue to be uh, more inclusive and more diverse. And they do have work to do. Believe me, these studios and these franchises yeah. have work to do. Um, yeah. but, but they are saying we're not going to do this with you all. We're not going to play these games. Good. Either you're going to love us for who we are or you're not going to watch us at all. As Yoda would say, racist we will not have. Nichelle Turner, there you go. thank you so much. <laughs> we'll be right back. Good to see you, bro. That's it for us tonight. I'll be back tomorrow night. Don Lemon tonight starts right now. Hey, Don. Hi, Laura. Thank you. We're going to get straight to the breaking news. Have a good evening. We'll see you tomorrow you night. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.